0: we hope that you find our discussion empowering.
1: Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner and head of the abuse team at Hugh James, and it is with great pleasure that I introduce my guest, and this is John Skull. Hi, John. Hello there. And John and I go back a very, very long way. We were neighbors for many years when I was still in short trousers, or maybe not quite still in short trousers. But anyway, a long, long time ago. And uh, so we were neighbors. And then sort of later in life, we were on the opposite side of the fence. I was defending great and the good or the not so great and the good. And um, John would say, wouldn't you, John, for you were on the side of law and order. You were on the side of the angels. So yeah, anyway, we were, we were, were. <laughs> on the opposite side of the fence. So there was me in the magistrate's court or whatever, um, representing certain individuals. And um, John was there on the other side of his policeman's helmet and his policeman's atom, trying to ensure that the streets of Hampshire were free and safe. Well, I do recall that there
2: was a few occasions when uh, you and I would cross paths professionally and we would just have to pretend that we weren't friends and live <laughs> next door to each other, which was quite amusing,
1: really was, wasn't it? And then our paths deviated. um, But here we are, some years later, doing this podcast. And would it be a good idea to have John on, because he is the author of a very interesting book titled, If You Can't Take a Joke. It says, in summary, if I go back to the back of the book, this is the story of one boy's journey from his dysfunctional family in the 1960s slums of Belfast during the Troubles. Who is welcoming and caring family in the Royal Navy. And so, for some listeners, I perhaps I'll explain that troubles is a euphemism for what I would describe as the paramilitary violence and general violence that started or broke out in Northern Ireland or Ulster, if you prefer, in about 1969 and continued right through the 70s, into the 80s, into the 90s. And It blighted the lives of many, many people and was responsible for the deaths of many people and the injuries of many people through the violence. And we're not here to discuss the rights and wrongs of what happened today, but we are going to talk about troubles and what it was like for young people in Northern Ireland, in particular in Belfast, growing up through the Troubles. And we're also going to talk about something that's very personal to you, John, about how you came involved with the care system and law and order and how that shaped your life, for better or for worse. So that's my sort of long introduction, but I think a necessary introduction because there will, I'm sure, be some listeners who are not familiar with the term the Troubles. So, John, what sparked you off to put pen to paper and sign to write a book? Well, it's uh, quite interesting
2: because the birth of the book was really my desire to write a family legacy document because by any account, I had a different sort of childhood than, than most people. And I really wanted to feel confident that my daughters in particular and any, any grandchildren that would happen to come along would have an understanding of their roots a little bit so the book really it took quite a while because it was not an intention to write a book for publication but basically to document my childhood so that my kids really understood who their father was and again i really like the idea of in a hundred years long after i've gone that there's a family document that people can look back on and say ow that's part of my heritage, that's part of my culture, and that's part of who I am. So it took quite a while to write, but it was a funny and amusing time, as well as a deeply emotional time. Because if you're writing a memoir in particular, you start to do a bit of research to refresh your memory about oh. incidents mm-hmm. that happened in the past, to refresh your memory about institutions that I was in. And we'll go, we'll move on to that but really the idea was to provide
1: a document for the family archives if you like no more than that oh. and in doing so and when you're particularly focusing on what must have been at certain times a very very troubling times for you as a, as a youngster when you're visiting those memories how difficult was it because I would have thought there would be a tendency to want to block out memories or a tendency to view certain Memories or certain aspects of those memories through a certain prism, and that it must, you know, you must be facing that sort of challenge in your thinking do I really want to confront the truth of what happened, or is it safer or more desirable not to do so? Because we yeah, all can really- go back in our lives and want to interpret things in a particular way because that makes us feel better or justified in some way.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. For me, my personality traits as an adult is one of fun and humor and jokes and laughing rather than sadness and crying and bitterness or anger. And so when I approached the book, although some of the memories were painful And at times quite emotional when you do that recall, because in a way sort of have to live it again a little bit, particularly if you want to write about it. If you have a memory in your mind, it's totally different to keeping that memory in there and then examining it to the point where you can write about it. So it was a bit of both. There was a bit of my adult persona saying, you know, you got to write about it. And then there's a bit of the sort of, reverting back to how you felt at the time and that was one of the things that I how I wanted to write it I didn't want it necessarily to be a retrospective but you know writing it from the perspective of the five six seven year eight old Johnny Wardlow as I was then and how I felt at the time and to put yourself in that position often is emotional because you you think about things like depravity and violence and drunkenness and alcoholism and all the rest of it. And when you put yourself back there, you can't help but feel emotional and sad and a little bit angry, but I always manage to push anger away. And I think that's reflected in the writing of the book because although it's quite tragic story in some ways, I've written it with, with what I hope is some humor Because when you're going through it as a child, you don't have the understanding that Mm. you do as an adult. For example, we were very poor, right? But we didn't know we were poor because everybody around us was poor. Yeah. You know, and with the minor incidents of of violence, like the slap or the smack, well, that was Belfast back in the 1960s. You know, that's, you know, we all had post-war fathers, you know, who probably served in the military like my father did and discipline was very important to them and the correction of erring from the rules was always violence and we thought well that's just the way it was you know it's only later in life when you realize you know what that shouldn't have happened to me so it was really swings and roundabouts because as well as remembering those bad moments I also remember the funny side of things Mm. You know the funny side of tragic circumstances.
1: Yes, and that's a thread in your book, if I may say so. But in spite of the adversity, and you know, for me as a reader, I think, oh, if I'd been John, I would have found that terrifying or alarming or or, or whatever. There is nevertheless, there's this sense that you know, in spite of everything, you had inside you this sort of strength of, you know, that you you were able to remain positive. Might not have been conscious of it at the time. But the way you describe events and the way you cope with them, there seems to be this thread of positivity.
2: Well, there's, there's the thread of positivity. And, and I think I always had that. And I want to move on to that a bit later. So remind me of that, because I think my natural confidence reduced the level of abuse that I suffered. And I'll cover that a little bit later. We'll move on to that. But as well as as that character trait, there was also the fact of childhood ignorance, right? So you you referred to the Troubles in your introduction. And of course, I was raised during the heart of the Troubles. You know, 1969, you're absolutely correct. That's when it started. 1969, I was 11 years old. And as a child, things like the riots, which people viewed with absolute horror, for us kids, we had no political awareness. We didn't understand the difference between Romans and Catholics and loyalists and republics and the queen and the Republic and and, and all the rest of it, nor could we care less. Mm. Right. So in fact, for us, particularly during the times I was independent and living on the streets, the riots were a bit of fun. It Mm. was excitement. It was something to do. And so the childhood naivete was a very much a part of how we were brought up you know, we we our education wasn't great. You know, it didn't get any better once I went into care. But life on the streets was adventurous. You know, the book is not really Dickensian and, and Oliver Twist like. It's more, in my opinion, Huckleberry Finn. Mm. You know, it, it's more about the adventures of Johnny Wardlow mm. as a, as a wee boy than oh the sadness of his deprived childhood. Mm. You know, because every stage of my childhood, I was with children who were from the same environment, Mm. you know, whether that be the slums of Belfast where unemployment was high, alcoholism was high, domestic violence was pretty much the norm, Mm. you know, so so much more so than today, where, you know, we would now intervene if we saw somebody hitting their child, we would say, you you shouldn't be doing that. Back then, it was a question of what did he do to deserve it? yeah, You know, And, and so life moves on. Society changes, but that doesn't mean that we weren't treated correctly as children. And as a child, you know, the realization that I wasn't being treated properly happened quite quickly.
1: Yeah. And reading the book, it seems as though things, life quickly starts to go off rails in the sense in that you do come to the attention of the authorities and you end up quite quickly going into the care system.
2: Yes. It started, uh, my father was in the army. So I didn't see that much of him in my early childhood. And when I did, it was when he was on leave. And then he would come on leave and the army discipline would start. And that means violence back then. But also to complicate matters, my mother, who at 20 had four children under the age of five, Mm -hmm. one of whom was severely handicapped. He had dwarfism, he had a hole in his heart. He sadly passed when he was uh, only 14 years old. So I was actually being raised by my grandparents at the time, The whole, all the kids were, all um, four of us at the time. They couldn't really cope. You know, they were from poor stock uh, and suffered with problems with alcohol. So the, the, the violence was almost a daily thing. If you did something wrong, you know, you, you were hit for it. You know, now there's a difference between smacking a child on the ass if it's in danger of sticking its fingers in the plug socket to say you mustn't do that to just every minor indiscretion being punished with violence and when alcohol gets involved with the carers it just gets more and more intensive so that was the situation as a young child then my father retired from the army and he came and he tried to pick up the reins, so to speak. We moved into a nicer house. By today's standards, it would be considered very modest. But to me, as a, a I guess a 10-year-old, it was a mansion. Hmm. You know, there, there was only me and my brother sharing a room instead of me, two of my brothers and my sister, hmm. you know. But the violence didn't stop. It got to the point where I'd had enough. And what had happened was I had passed the 11+, plus, which was a big deal back then. Yeah. And I was sent to Annadale Grammar School, a very well-known school in Belfast. But at that time, it was a private school, but they had been forced in about 1969, 70 to take underprivileged children on scholarship. You know, there was a Labour government in power, I believe. And they said, okay, enough of the elitism. You've got to take some of these kids. Sadly, in my area, I think I was the only boy that passed 11 plus that year. So all of a sudden... I'm gone from my normal childhood with all my gutter-snipe friends into this school when the children are being dropped off in BMWs and, and uh, uh-huh. often a Bentley, you uh-huh. know. So that didn't really work out, so I started truanting. Yeah. And uh, that basically led to letters from the headmaster, most of which I managed to intercept. But finally one got through and and, and resulted in a dreadful beating from my father. And I decided on the spur of the moment, naked in the backyard where I was being hosed down that I wasn't gonna take this anymore. So at 12 years old, I left the back alley entrance of the house and, and never went back.
1: Yeah, you legged it. You legged it and a new adventure began.
2: It did. I lived on the streets for a little while, which was, please don't feel sorry for me because it was at that time, the most independence I ever had. It was the most freedom I ever had. And for a while, I felt kind of indestructible. But there comes a point when you're 12, when you need rescuing. And and thankfully, a a social worker, whose name sadly escapes me, but hey, I was 12. And I ended up in Bonmore Boys' home, which I must say, wasn't the worst place I'd ever been. It was run by a chap called Mr. Smythe or Smith, S-M-Y-T-H. And he was a very kind man. And the problems there didn't come from the staff. It came from the other inmates, as I referred to them. Tongue in cheek, of course. And so there were one or two incidents, which I cover in the book, where it would be considered abuse. But as I said earlier, my natural confidence allowed me to, to manage that abuse in quite a forthright manner. And so the incidents of abuse there were minor in comparison, for example, to some of the cases that you deal with. And I was cruising along nicely there. But my brother, my twin brother at that time was in Rathgale, which for those that aren't aware was, is basically a stall. It was called Rathgale Training School. There was no training and it wasn't really a school. Yeah. And it was far more violent and what actually happened was I was visited by my social worker at Balmore, and he asked me, you know, how are things going? We mom and, and I basically said, well, I'd, I'd, I want to be with my brother. And he said, well, your, your brother's in Rathgale and that's for bad boys. Hmm. So I took that rather as an instruction rather than advice.
1: And so a twist in the adventure then begins because that's when you start to become, you know, a known name law and order and the court. Yes, I
2: was possibly the worst burglar in Belfast. I never found anything um, in the houses that we broke into. Now, I'm talking uh, about this tongue-in-cheek. I am aware of the seriousness of burglary and also the negative impacts it has on the victims. But at 12 years old, 13 years old, I didn't really care because... That's not the sort of thing you think about at that age, particularly given my circumstances at the time. Of course, that eventually uh, led to court proceedings and me being sentenced at 13 years old, or maybe it was 14, to one to three years in Rathgell Training School. Hmm. Now, the irony of the whole thing was that when I turned up there, my brother had absconded. So he wasn't even there. So, yeah, th- that, that's when the adventure back. When he returned, he had determined that he didn't like it there. I didn't particularly like it there because it was very violent. Education was non-existent. There was a school of sorts, but they were teaching primary school stuff. And basically because I was slightly, well, I was more than slightly ahead of that. uh, I basically sat at the back and read books all the time. So I was reading Robert Louis Stevenson. I was reading Mark Twain. And I think that those books, particularly Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, Kidnapped, Treasure Island, they engendered in me this lifelong need that I've now had to travel and, and have adventures. But the abuse that went on there Different to Bournemouth was that it was also the staff. The staff were violent, the staff were abusive, and I determined to get out of there as soon as I could. So I absconded from there again with my brother and got into some more misadventures, I think is probably the best term.
1: And, of course, this is when you would come across paramilitaries who were also on the streets to instill their own sense of law and order. That's exactly right. And and
0: what
2: happens there that people may not understand if they haven't been raised in that environment was that when you've got 12 and 13 year old and 14 year old kids running the streets, they have little idea about the political situation, the history behind the troubles. And the older, more bigoted people in these organisations knew that there was no point in sending them going themselves to talk to these kids. So they would send the 16, 17-year-olds that we could relate to, and they would come. And and this is on both sides of of, of the divide. This is Republicans and Loyalists, you know. My book is non-sectarian. It's not about the troubles. But so it was the same on both sides where these 16, 17-year-old junior members of the UDVF, the UDA, the IRA, the INLA, they would come and see the kids on the streets and the little gangs that we had, and they would sort of effectively brainwash us with their poison and so for those organizations those paramilitaries the street kids and the urchins were just perfect recruitment fodder you know who could be brainwashed and i still see it today when i look at facebook groups about ireland which i started to do as part of my research for for my memoir you still see that poison today from the older generation. And I honestly believe that the younger generations of Northern Ireland and the whole of Ireland, for that matter, want peace, peace at any cost. And they abhor violence, but there are still those poisonous minds out there, you know, who believe the myths and who believe the nonsense that they were taught as kids because they didn't develop and didn't learn and didn't mature, Mm -hmm. you know. And that's my big concern, you, you know, is that, that these guys are still out there preaching poison on both sides uh, of the argument. So I'm hopeful that the uh, the majority of the younger generation see through that and don't
1: get embroiled in it. And of course, eventually you do get your break and you then end up having a you know successful career in the Royal Navy.
2: I was very lucky. I was released after a year because of uh, intervention by the Home Secretary and my circumstances, blah, blah, blah. And um, so I ended up going to England, where I was reunited with uh, my mother, my twin brother and my sister. And my stepfather, a man called Alan Skull, who I have the utmost respect for, because he took on a family of three teenagers with those dreadful backgrounds. Hmm. And I was actually, uh, the schools weren't interested in in a 15-year-old boy from Belfast at all. So uh, I basically did work experience and then got a job at 16 in a factory. And one particular day, I had a a dreadful day at the factory where I used to serve out stores from the warehouse and uh, to a little hatch. And that day, the first guy that came along was a 16-year-old apprentice. And I thought, he's just like me. The next guy was in his mid-20s. And, and he was a charge hand, so oh, that could be me in 10 years. Next guy in his 30s, guy in his 40s was a manager. The guy in his 50s, and I thought, oh, my goodness, is this me in 40 or 50 years? Still working here, dishing out two BA screws and bolts. On the way home, I was riding my little moped, and uh, I passed a, a poster which was basically a picture of a sailor with a very attractive woman on each arm drinking a, some weird concoction out of a coconut shell saying, join the Navy and see the world. So I did. I, I, I went and, and was selected. Uh, they were obviously short of radio operators. So I was selected for that branch. And then I found that a family. You know, I found the camaraderie from the even the earliest days. I found the camaraderie a new family. I thought, this is a feeling that I belonged. Now, it wasn't plain sailing, because although academically I did really well, on the domestic side of things like ironing and washing and cleaning, and also discipline, I wasn't the best. So the second part of the book covers the the various scrapes I got into.
1: Do you think that was a natural path for you, given your experiences as a teenager? Do you think that was... There was a, a hint of destiny.
2: I, you know, I think there was. And I think it was also partly the reading I'd done and the realisation at a young age, at the 13, 14, 15 age, that the world was a big place, you know. And, and of course, when I saw that poster, it said, see the world. And I'd been reading about all these adventures of people who'd been all over the world, and, I th- and that helped uh, the situation. And I've never, ever lost the passion for travel. But also it was, I had been institutionalized. So the one thing I was good at was being somewhere on time, being in uniform, mm. respect for authority. But this time, the respect for authority wasn't forced because if you didn't, you got beaten. It was, if you didn't, you'd get some minor punishment and inconvenience, yeah. you know, which is, yeah. which is the military way, you know, go and peel potatoes for two days, you know, rather than beating you up. I enjoyed it really. After my initial training, the initial training was difficult, but it also gave me the realization that I wasn't thick. Now, back in the seventies, I joined the navy in seventy-five. Back in the seventies, the old jokes in England were all about the thick Irishman, the paddy. Yeah, you know. So I sort of thought that well, maybe I'm one of them. You know. Plus the fact that it was around the time the IRA were busy blowing up pubs in Manchester and London. And so every time I opened my mouth, somebody would say, oh, you're from Belfast, mate, and they'd punch me. You know, mm. So I, I also learned to fight at that stage because I didn't like being punched. And I thought I'm not going to put up with it. So uh, that all helped. But the Navy sort of made me feel at home. I had my own bed. I had my own stuff. I was told what to do. And most of it wasn't unreasonable, you know, And then on the academic side of things, I found that I was doing really well in the exams. Well, maybe I'm not that thick Irish kid. You know, maybe there's some potential here. And that carried me through. That carried me through the tough days in the Navy. See, the Navy and the military in general does give you an opportunity. There's a clear progression, you know, and it's lovely because it's signified by badges. You know, whether the sergeant stripes or a major's crown or a lieutenant's pips. You know, it, it's a structure. And say so if you work hard and you study and you take the exams and you show ability, then you can move up, you know. And I quite like that idea of career progression, if you like. It appealed to me, you know, because as a child, it didn't matter what I did, still got beat, you know. And being smart doesn't help you on the street. And, well, being intelligent doesn't help you on the street. Being smart does.
1: Yeah, that's prob. So you probably learnt as a street kid, for want of a better term, mm. a lot of very useful skills for all the wrong reasons.
2: Well, and, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and the skills were mainly if you do stuff up, particularly in the like, put, put your hand up and say I might have stuffed up here, and and take the consequences. And for me, that was quite refreshing because you didn't have to hide all the time because it's easy to stuff up. We all do it. You know, but it's when you stuff up and the risk of of owning up is a a beating, then you lie. So the Navy also taught me to be honest, you you know, and accept responsibility for what I did. Now, it didn't happen overnight. I wasn't an angel in my first couple of years in in the Navy, as you probably read in the book. But because I worked hard and because I was pretty good at what I did, the consequences pretty much took that into account. So it was like, hey, look, he's 17, he's stuffed up, but he works hard, he does a good job, and he's a developing young man. He's not an adult. We can't expect the same levels of responsibility. you know. So, so the Navy are very good at sort of cutting you a bit of slack when you deserve it, and that's why I loved it.
1: So before we wrap up, I'm just curious as to whether you think there's one major life lesson that you learnt from living on the streets of Belfast. Don't carry bitterness with you. Don't carry anger
2: with you. That is destructive. And that is also a hurdle to success. So I believe that what I've managed to do is take it all in my stride. Even when I was researching the book, even when it got difficult, even when I thought I was a little jerk, I said, well, hang on a minute. Look at the circumstances. What you did wasn't outrageous. You didn't kill anybody, you know? And and so... Being positive, not giving up, not sitting back and taking it. And I think that's a, a lesson that anybody can carry through their, through their lives. If they see any sort of injustice, don't sit back and take it, even if it's happening to somebody else, you know. And if I can just explain why the, I've published the book, sure. um, because I said originally it was a, a legacy document for my family only. But during that research, I found out about the historical institutional abuse inquiry in Northern Ireland. And I had no idea about this. And then I found out about the subsequent compensation scheme. So I looked into it a little bit more and uh, realized, although the inquiry was valid, and I think the conclusions they came to were spot on, I think the compensation scheme is valid. Because not only is there a monetary compensatory element to it, there's also the recognition, the formal recognition that you weren't treated properly by state establishments that had a duty of care towards you and didn't fulfill that duty of care. Hmm. So when I found out about that, I decided that the best way to spread the word about that was by publishing the book. Now, I've only self-published on Amazon. It's currently sold a few hundred copies. I would have liked to have found a mainstream publisher, but they're not interested. It's too niche. And it's also a little bit dark when it comes to historical abuse. I'm still trying to find a publisher. So if you're listening to this podcast and you know anybody, please recommend the book and maybe help me get a mainstream publisher. But the point is, I've had, I think now seven people contact me because of the book was published, of whom I know five have already received compensation, and two who are currently applicants in progress. For me, I've had a successful life. I've had a great life. I've managed to retire early. Uh, I enjoy myself. I get to do what I like not because I'm wealthy, but because my expectations of good fun is low. But I know from the people I've spoken to that most people who went through the same system carried it through their lives. And I know one, I know two that are living in little council, one bedroom flats, and they're struggling with alcoholism. I know of two that have committed suicide. So although the compensation for me is secondary, for them, at the age we are now, us kids are all now in our 60s, that compensation can be life-changing. Sure. And so uh, I would like them to get that. I think everybody who went through that system deserves the formal recognition. And for those in need, which to be perfectly honest, is most of them, that extra money will also make a difference to their lives.
1: And that's important, well, you know, it's incredibly important, and it's a a feature that is often overlooked. It's not compo, as some people ignorantly label these things, it's about compensation, trying, trying to make amends as best as the law can for very often terrible injustices and wrongs that have been committed, often on very vulnerable young people. Correct, and one of the issues I have, although I applaud the inquiry itself,
2: I applaud the compensation scheme. What's lacking is the publicity. I didn't know about it until I was researching for my memoir. My brother didn't know about it. My sister didn't know about it. They both applied and received compensation. Yeah. And I just think about the number of people who are no longer in Ireland, because a lot of us ran away from Ireland, you know, so... I don't know, uh, you know better than I do, Alan, how well publicized it is in England, for example. Nobody knows about it.
1: Well, there is that that aspect to it. And of course, people are very understandably nervous because of their experiences in life, in coming forward and dealing with anything that smacks of authority. You know, there's that inbuilt fear that this is something official, it's authority. And um, they're very wary of it. And it, it all stems back to their terrible experiences as children. And
2: there's the fear, of course, of having to relive Mm. those dreadful experiences. Now, most people won't know this, but you and I do from our experiences. That is that the application process itself is actually handled very sensitively. Yeah. So you don't have to relive stuff. And the message for people that may have been in these circumstances, the fact that you were just in the care of those establishments means that you're owed an apology. And some compensation. You don't have to really relive those specific incidences, mm. right? If you don't want to, if it hurts too much, if it's yeah. too painful, mm. you know. Now, if you do have the fortitude to go into detail, then of course that does make a difference to the outcome of compensation, which for me is secondary, but for other people might be significant. Yes, yeah, could be so, extremely important. Yeah, the message is that even if you were just there, contact somebody like yourself and talk to them. You may decide not to proceed in the end, but you need to ask some questions and you'll be surprised how simple and how empathetic the process is. There's no appearances in courtrooms. There's no massive statements to be made. There's just the minimum is details of dates. So I would encourage good anybody yeah. in that position to talk to somebody like yourself.
1: Yeah, very good advice. And I didn't have to pay you to say it. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. No. <laughs> what? Okay. We'll anyway. edit that out. Yeah, we'll edit that out. Anyway, no podcast listeners. I hope um, what you've heard in this podcast is not only of interest, but for some of you, maybe of some real use and benefit. So thank you, John. Thank you very much for your time. We could have carried on talking and talking and talking, but I'm just very conscious of the time. And before I forget, I did mention right at the very beginning, but in case you didn't get it, the title of John's book is If You Can't Take a Joke. And the author is John R. Skull. So anyway, so thank you very much, John. Much appreciated. You take care, and to all our podcast listeners, you take care too, and look forward to you joining the next podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.